exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a year, I'm Mark Langley. And today is day 91 in our exploration of this Catechism. We are talking about the Sacrament of Holy Orders, and we've already spent two days talking about it. In the last episode, we talked about the division in the Sacrament of Holy Orders, beginning with the minor orders, the porter, the reader, the exorcist, the acolyte, and then the major orders, the subdeacon, the deacon, and the priest. And even though the Sacrament of Orders has sort of been reassigned with respect to the minor orders and the subdiaconate, we found that uh, St. Thomas Aquinas was talking about these other orders that have been suppressed, um, sort of as the church subdividing the, la the labor of the priest, a division of the labor of the priest. So really they all uh, were steps to the priesthood, so to speak, and the minor orders, each ascending by degree. We talked about how those who were entering the orders, uh, the sacrament of orders, would begin with the tonsure, um, the symbol of Christ's crown of thorns on their head. And each time they received an order, the tonsure was increased until I'm imagining they might not have had much hair left at all by the time they were priest. Uh, today, we are going to talk more about the priest, the priesthood, and um, we're going to begin in the catechism under the subtitle, The Twofold Priesthood. So let us dive right in there and begin. But as sacred scripture testifies, a twofold priesthood, one internal and the other external, it will be necessary to have a distinct idea of each to enable pastors to explain the nature of the priesthood now under discussion. The internal priesthood. Regarding the internal priesthood, all the faithful are said to be priests once they have been washed in the saving waters of baptism. Especially is this name given to the just who have the Spirit of God, and who by the help of divine grace have been made living members of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. For enlightened by faith which is inflamed by charity, they offer up spiritual sacrifices to God on the altar of their hearts. Among such sacrifices must be reckoned every good and virtuous action done for the glory of God. Hence we read in the Apocalypse, Christ hath washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us a kingdom and priests to God and his Father. That's in Apocalypse 1, verse 5 and 6. In like manner was it said by the Prince of the Apostles, Be you also as living stones built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. That's in 1 Peter. While the Apostle exhorts us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing unto God, your reasonable service. And long before this David had said, a sacrifice to God is an afflicted spirit, a contrite and humble heart, O God, you will not despise. All this clearly regards the internal priesthood. And now we go into the external priesthood. The external priesthood, on the contrary, does not pertain to the faithful at large, but only to certain men who have been ordained and consecrated to God by the lawful imposition of hands and by the solemn ceremonies of Holy Church, and who are thereby devoted to a particular sacred ministry. This distinction of the priesthood can be seen even in the old law that David spoke of the internal priesthood. We have just shown 
On the other hand, everyone knows the many and various precepts given by the Lord to Moses and Aaron regarding the external priesthood. Along with this, he appointed the whole tribe of Levi to the ministry of the temple, and he forbade by law that anyone belonging to another tribe should dare to intrude himself into that function. Hence it was that King Ozias was afflicted with leprosy by the Lord for having usurped the sacerdotal ministry and had to suffer grave chastisements for his arrogance and sacrilege. Now, as the same distinction of a twofold priesthood may be noted in the new law, the faithful should be cautioned that what we are now about to say concerns that external priesthood which is conferred on certain special individuals. This alone belongs to the sacrament of holy orders. The office of a priest, then, is to offer sacrifice to God and to administer the sacraments of the church. This is proved by the various ceremonies used at his ordination. When ordaining a priest, the bishop first of all imposes hands on him, as do all the other priests who are present. Then he puts a stole on his shoulders and arranges it over his breast in the form of a cross, declaring thereby that the priest is clothed with power from on high, enabling him to carry the cross of Christ our Lord and the sweet yoke of God's law, and to inculcate this law not only by words but also by the example of a most holy and virtuous life. He next anoints his hands with holy oil, and then gives him the chalice with wine and the paten with a host, saying at the same time, Receive the power to offer sacrifice to God, and to celebrate masses, both for the living and for the dead. By these words and ceremonies, the priest is constituted an interpreter and mediator between God and man, which indeed must be regarded as the principal function of the priesthood. Lastly, placing his hands a second time on the head of the person ordained, the bishop says, Receive the Holy Ghost. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them, and whose sins, whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Thus communicating to him that divine power of forgiving and retaining sin, which was given by our Lord to his disciples. Such then are the special and principal functions of the sacerdotal order. And now we continue with the subheading, the degrees of the priesthood, first beginning with priests. Now, although the sacerdotal order is one alone, yet it has various degrees of dignity and power. The first degree is that of those who are simply called priests, and of whose functions we have hitherto been speaking. Bishops. The second is that of bishops who are placed over the various dioceses to govern not only the other ministers of the church, but the faithful also, and to promote their salvation with supreme vigilance and care. Hence it is that in sacred scripture they are often called pastors of the sheep. Their office and duty has been well described by St. Paul in his sermon to the Ephesians, as we read in the Acts of the Apostles. While St. Peter, the Prince of the Apostles, has also laid down a divine rule for the exercise of the Episcopal office, and if bishops strive to conform their actions according to this rule, there can be no doubt that they will be good pastors and will be also esteemed as such. Bishops are also called pontiffs. This name is derived from the pagans and thus designated their chief priests. And here we might pause to note that the derivation of the word pontiff is from the Latin pons, pontis, which means a bridge, and facio facere, which means to make. So the word pontiff means a bridge maker. 
And so the pagan priests were the bridge makers between the people and God. And uh, the Catholic Church has also adopted this name, especially for the Pontifex Maximus, our, the Pope, who's the, the, uh, the great bridge builder. There's also an interesting footnote in our text uh, that I think is helpful. It says, although the episcopate completes the priesthood and forms one order with it, bishops are by divine right superior to priests, both in the hierarchy of orders and in that of jurisdiction. Inasmuch as they are the ordinary ministers of confirmation and ordination and possess superior legislative, judiciary, and coercive powers. And so this sort of addresses the question that we have, um, at least in my mind, in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, we noted that there are four minor orders and three major orders. And it's interesting to see that the major orders are subdeacon, deacon, and priest. Um, one might have thought that the major orders would be something like uh, deacon, priest, and bishop. Uh, but in this catechism, it's, it's explaining that the episcopate is really a fuller degree of the priest. It's a, it's a, it's a degree of the priesthood. Um, nonetheless, uh, I suppose the wording might change on that, uh, because I think in the new catechism, the catechism of the Catholic Church, the uh, bishops, deacons, bishops, and priests are enumerated as the orders there. So in that text, we see them uh, specifically divided as if there's three orders, although we should check into that a little more fully. But in the meantime, let's move on here. Archbishops. The third degree is that of archbishops who preside over a number of bishops and who are called metropolitans because they are bishops of those cities which are regarded as the metropolis of their respective provinces. Hence, they enjoy greater dignity and more extensive power than bishops, although their ordination is the same. Patriarchs. In the fourth degree, some patriarchs, in the fourth degree come patriarchs, that is to say, the first and highest of the fathers. Formerly, besides the Roman pontiff, there were in the universal church only four patriarchs, who, however, were not of equal dignity. Thus, Constantinople, though it reached the patriarchal honor only after all the others, yet it obtained a higher rank by reason of being the capital of the empire. Next in rank came the Patriarch of Alexandria, which church had been founded by St. Mark the Evangelist by order of the Prince of the Apostles. The third was that of Antioch, where Peter fixed his first see. Finally, that of Jerusalem, a see first governed by James, the brother of our Lord. Above all these, the Catholic Church has always placed the Supreme Pontiff of Rome, whom Cyril of Alexandria and the Council of Ephesus named the Chief Bishop, Father, and Patriarch of the whole world. He sits in that chair of Peter in which, beyond every shadow of doubt, the Prince of the Apostles sat to the end of his days, and hence it is that in him the Church recognizes the highest degree of dignity and a universality of jurisdiction derived not from the decrees of men or councils, but from God himself, wherefore he is the father and guide of all the faithful, of all the bishops, and of all the prelates, no matter how high their power and office. And as successor of St. Peter, as true and lawful vicar of Christ our Lord, he governs the universal church. 
From what has been said, therefore, pastors should teach what are the principal duties and functions of the various ecclesiastical orders and degrees, and also who is the minister of this sacrament. The minister of holy orders. Beyond all doubt, it is to the bishop that the administration of orders belongs, as is easily proved by the authority of Holy Scripture, by most certain tradition, by the testimony of all the fathers, by the decrees of the councils, and by the usage and practice of Holy Church. It is true that permission has been granted to some abbots occasionally to administer those orders that are minor and not sacred, yet there is no doubt whatever that it is the proper office of the bishop and of the bishop alone to confer the orders called holy or major. To ordain subdeacons, deacons, and priests, one bishop suffices, but in accordance with an apostolic tradition that has always been observed in the church, bishops are consecrated by three bishops. And now we go to the recipient of holy orders. We now come to indicate who are fit to receive this sacrament, and especially the priestly order, and what are the principal dispositions required of them. From what we shall lay down concerning the dispositions requisite for the priesthood, it will be easy to determine what ought to be observed in conferring the other orders, due account being taken of the office and dignity of each. Now the, extre now the extreme caution that should be used in conferring this sacrament is gathered from the fact that while all the other sacraments impart grace to the recipient for his own use and sanctification, he, on the other hand, who receives holy orders, is made partaker of heavenly grace, precisely that by his ministry he may promote the welfare of the church and therefore of all mankind. Hence we readily understand why it is that ordinations take place only on special days, on which, moreover, in accordance with the very ancient practice of the Catholic Church, a solemn fast is appointed in order that by holy and fervent prayer the faithful may obtain from God ministers who will be well qualified to exercise properly and to the advantage of the church the power of so great a ministry. The qualifications for the priesthood, holiness of life. The chief and most necessary quality requisite in him who is to be ordained a priest is that he be recommended by integrity of life and morals. First, because by procuring and permitting his ordination while conscious of mortal sin, a man renders himself guilty of a new and enormous crime. And secondly, because the priest is bound to give to the others the example of a holy and innocent life. In this connection, pastors should set forth the rules which the apostle laid down to Titus and Timothy, and he should also explain that those bodily defects which by the Lord's command excluded from the service of the altar in the old law should for the most part be understood of deformities of soul in the new law. This is why the holy custom has been established in the church that he who is about to be admitted to orders should first take great care to cleanse his conscience in the sacrament of pen penance. Next we have competent knowledge. In the second place, there is required of the priest not only that, no that knowledge which concerns the use and administration of the sacraments, but he should also be versed in the science of sacred scripture so as to be able to instruct the people in the mysteries of the Christian faith and the precepts of the divine law, lead them to piety and virtue, and reclaim them from sin. The priest's duties are twofold. The first is to consecrate and administer the sacraments properly, 
The second is to instruct the people entrusted to him in all that they must know or do in order to be saved. Hence the words of the prophet Malachias, The lips of the priest shall keep knowledge, and they shall seek the law at his mouth, because he is the angel of the Lord of hosts. That's Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. Now, now to fulfill the first of these duties, it is enough for him to be endowed with a moderate share of knowledge. As for the second, it is no mere ordinary, but very special knowledge that is required. At the same time, however, it should be remembered that a profound knowledge of abstruse questions is not demanded of all priests in an equal degree. It is enough that each one knows all that is necessary for the discharge of his office and ministry. And finally, uh, we have canonical fitness as a qualification. This sacrament should not be conferred on children nor on the insane or mad because they are devoid of the use of reason. Yet, if it does happen to be administered to them, we must unhesitatingly believe that the sacramental character becomes impressed on their souls. As for the precise age requisite for the reception of the various orders, this will easily be found in the decrees of the Council of Trent. Slaves also are excluded. He who is not his own master and who is in the power of another should not be dedicated to the divine service. Homicides and men of blood are also rejected because they are excluded by a law of the church and are declared irregular. The same must be said of the illegitimate and of all those not born in lawful wedlock. It is only right that those who are dedicated to the divine service should have nothing in them which could expose them to the well-deserved derision of con or contempt of others. Finally, those who are notably maimed or deformed should not be admitted. A defect or deformity of this kind cannot but offend the eye and stand in the way of the due administration of the sacraments. And again, it's interesting to read these uh, qualifications for the priesthood. Uh, some of them sound... Um, do seem to harken back to the Old Testament with respect to the qualifications for the um, priesthood, both in terms of body and soul. Um, I'm quite certain that the church has lifted uh, many of the restrictions that are that we see here. Um, although, again, I'm not I'm not quite certain. Um, it would seem to me that um, the someone who has committed murder. Uh, might not be the best candidate for the priesthood. <laughs> and finally, the effects of holy orders. This much being explained, it now remains for pastors to point out the effects of this sacrament. It is evident that the sacrament of orders, while mainly concerned, as already explained, with the welfare and beauty of the church, Nevertheless, also confers on the soul of him who was ordained the grace of sanctification, fitting and qualifying him for the proper discharge of his functions and for the administration of the sacraments, in the same way as by the grace of baptism each one is qualified to receive the other sacraments. Another grace is clearly conferred by this sacrament, namely a special power with reference to the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist. This power is full and perfect in the priest, because he alone can consecrate the body and blood of our Lord. But it is greater or less in the inferior ministers in proportion 
as their ministry approaches the sacrament of the altar. This power is also called a spiritual character because those who have been ordained are distinguished from the rest of the faithful by a certain interior mark impressed on the soul by which they are dedicated to the divine worship. It is this grace which the apostle seems to have had in view when he said to Timothy, Neglect not the grace that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with imposition of hands of the priesthood. And again, I admonish thee that thou stir up the grace of God which is in thee by the imposition of my hands. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, and 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. And finally, a very short admonition uh, that the Catechism um, has ending the section on holy orders. This much will suffice for the sacrament of orders. We have aimed at presenting nothing more than the principal points that bear on the subject, so as to supply the pastor with sufficient matter for instructing the faithful and directing them to Christian piety. And here I think it might be interesting just to note a few things from the Summa Theologica with respect to this, um, some of the things we've read. In uh, question 40 of the supplement, uh, we, find, um, we find whole uh, articles concerning the impediments to the sacrament of orders. And in the first articles of, this, of question 39, we see whether the female sex is an impediment to receiving orders. And of course, we see that the answer there that is given in the Summa is that uh, the female sex is an impediment and uh, the sacrament cannot be, um, a, a woman cannot receive the sacrament of orders. Um, and we, we're not going to read that. Um, we're going to move on to another article, but uh, we see that the Catechism is following these. Where uh, In the Summa, we see that... Um, Boys and those who lack the use of reason um, should not receive orders. Although there, uh, we find that the Summa says that that is more a matter of not concerning the validity, the validity of the sacrament, but rather um, the fittingness of the sacrament. And the same thing with those who are homicides or who are maimed, St. Thomas says they should not receive orders either, but again, should they have received orders, uh, the sacrament would of course still be valid. Um, so those kinds of impediments don't um, violate the validity of the sacrament, um, but rather the lawfulness and the, uh, the fittingness of who should receive orders. But there was one article that I wanted to get to that addresses this question concerning the episcopate. Are bishops really a distinct order from the priesthood? And here's an interesting article. It says, uh, this is the fifth article in question 40. Again, this is in the supplement to the Summa. Whether the episcopate is an order. And let's just read that. I'll read the objections. The objection is, uh, the first objection is, it would seem that the episcopate is, is an order. First of all, because Dionysius assigns these three orders to the ecclesiastical hierarchy, the bishop, the priest, and the minister. And that's the first objection. I think by the minister, uh, 
Dionysius must mean the deacon. The second objection is, further order is nothing else but a degree of power in the dispensing of spiritual things. Now, bishops can dispense certain sacraments which priests cannot dispense, namely confirmation and holy orders. Therefore, the episcopate is an order. And the third objection, further, in the church there is no spiritual power other than of order or jurisdiction, but things pertaining to the episcopal power are not matters of jurisdiction, else they might be committed to one who is not a bishop, which is false. Therefore, they belong to the power of order. Therefore, the bishop has an order, which a simple priest has not, and thus the episcopate is an order. And anyone who reads the Summa knows that when the objector uh, says one thing, it's very likely that St. Thomas is going to uh, say something contrary to that. So, hence the article goes, on the contrary, one order does not depend on a preceding order as regards the validity of the sacrament. But the Episcopal power depends on the priestly power, since no one can receive the Episcopal power unless he have previously the priestly power. Therefore, the Episcopate is not an order. And then he continues, uh, Further, the greater orders are not conferred except on Saturdays, but the, Episcopate, the Episcopal power is bestowed on Sundays. Therefore, it is not an order. And that sounds like an argument from tradition. Um, I'm not certain if that's still the case, whether deacons are. I think deacons, in fact, are ordained on Saturdays. Um, and bishops are, uh, the bishop, the episcopate is bestowed on Sundays. But he gets to the answer. He says, I answer that order may be understood in two ways. In one way as a sacrament, and thus, as already stated, every order is directed to the sacrament of the Eucharist. Wherefore, since the bishop has not a higher power than the priest in this respect, the episcopate is not an order. In another way, order may be considered as an office in relation to certain sacred actions. And thus, since in hierarchical actions a bishop has in relation to the mystical body a higher power than the priest, the episcopate is an order. It is in this sense that the authorities quoted speak. And so that's what Dionysius was talking about. So this is one of those articles where St. Thomas sort of clears up our question um, that in one way the bishop, the episcopate, is not um, a distinct order insofar as all of the orders are directed to the Eucharist. But he says, on the other hand, in another way, we might consider the episcopacy as an order. And so I'm figuring that's the way that the new catechism um, is considering it. The reply to the first objection, therefore, is clear. The reply to the second objection, order considered as a sacrament which imprints a character is specially directed to the sacrament of the Eucharist in which Christ himself is contained because by a character we are made like to Christ himself. Hence, although at his promotion the bishop receives a spiritual power in respect of certain sacraments, this power nevertheless has not the nature of a character. For this reason, the episcopate is not an order in the sense in which an order is a sacrament. So there again, we see that when the bishop is ordained, so to speak, it's not as if he receives a new character 
And so we think of the sacrament of holy orders as a, as a sacrament which bestows a character. And so therefore, uh, in that sense, the episcopacy is not an order. And then finally, the reply to the third objection. The episcopal power is one not only of jurisdiction, but also of order, as stated above, taking order in the sense in which it is generally understood. Um, so I think he's saying there that the episcopacy is an order in the sense that um, order means placing things in a certain hierarchy. And of, um, in this sense, the bishop is the one who confers order. And uh, so in that sense, we might say that the episcopacy is an order. So it's one of those yes and no um, answers. But I'm taking this, um, the Summa here, and the Catechism of the Council of Trent. I think their division of the orders um, is more logical insofar as every one of the orders is directed to the Eucharist. And so therefore, we have finished our treatment of the Sacrament of Holy Orders. In our next episode, we will continue with the Sacrament of Matrimony. That will complete our work in the sacraments. Uh, the Sacrament of Matrimony looks somewhat lengthy. So we're looking forward to that. Thank you for joining me in this episode of Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a Year. I'm Mark Langley, and we look forward to reading our next sacrament in our next episode.